This is a Crestview Bible Podcast. For more information, visit crestviewhutch.org. The rest of us are going to be in Job, Job chapter 29. Um, again, if you haven't gotten any notes, there's some in the back of the table, um, back stand back there. So grab those if you need those. Um, and we'll be in Job 29, and we're going to cover three chapters. So buckle up. Um, I, uh, I heard this week that there was a, a speaker many years ago, a guest speaker many years ago, that um, went on until like 1 o'clock in the afternoon. So um, I guess it was memorable. So if I want to make this sermon memorable, I guess I'll just I'll go till 1 hour. Um, so, or till 1 o'clock, and no, I'm just joking. Um, Job 29 to 31. Um, have, you, have you ever heard anybody say, trust me, just trust me? Um, fathers use it, right, to get their kids to do something that, uh, that they might be scared to do. Uh, teenagers use it to convince their parents that they should be able to uh, be out late at night or, or whatever. Hey, just, just trust me, mom and dad. I, you, you can trust me. Um, parents use it on toddlers with their million gazillion why questions. Why, daddy? Just, just trust me, okay? I, I don't want to explain that right now. I'll wait till you're a teenager, and then I'll explain it to you. Uh, just trust me, right? Um, spouses use it to alleviate concerns in their marriage. Employees use it to their bosses when they're breathing down their necks on a work project. Just trust me. I'll get it done. Trust me. I, it, it's going to be done by that time. Friends use it to get their buddies to do something. Hey, trust me. It'll be awesome. All right, hold my beer. Um, trust me. Uh, political leaders use it to... Uh, get people to trust them despite top-level secrets. Trust me, it, I, we're not going to just go and nuke Ukraine that, or nuke Russia. It's a little more complicated than that, just trust me. Uh, I actually had a, uh, a friend of mine who was a top-level guy in the Air Force, and I always asking him, like, what's in Area 50, 51? Like, what's, what is in Area 51? There's got to be aliens there, right? He's like, trust me, it's not that weird. And I'm like, no, really, what is it? Just trust me. Like, I couldn't get him to reveal what's in Area 51, but I tried. For your sake, I tried. Um, and so what's the response? What's the response when, when people say, trust me? You get the wary eye, right? Like, I, uh, I'm not so sure. Like, you're saying trust me. I don't know if I can, right? Why, why do we give the wary eye? You, they think, ah, you don't know my circumstance. You don't know who I am. That's not me. I can't do that, right? Uh, you get the, well... This, I've, I've seen it fail time and time again. You've, you've promised me that you'd be back by curfew, and uh, no, that's been like 30 times, and so no, I can't trust you, right? So we, get, we give them the wary eye. I have my own stories of trying to use that in my parenting, right? So trust me, this, this curry is not going to be spicy. Uh, sorry, it kind of was spicy usually. Um, Trust me, uh, we're not going to get you lost in Hong Kong. Oops, uh, did that once. Um, and then, trust me, we're not going to move again. Okay, I didn't actually say that. Um, <laughs> we're probably going to move again. Uh, so I can't say trust me on that one. But I, I use that a lot in my own parenting. So we all say that, and we all have, might have been burned by people that say, trust me. There's an award-winning author, John Updike. He wrote a whole award-winning, uh, famous short stories novel called Trust Me, um, just sharing stories of people who have had trauma uh, of 
people telling them, trust me, and it went really badly. And this, throughout this series in Job, we have heard, hey, Jesus saying, hey, trust me. Trust me in your suffering. Just, just, just trust me. But can we really, can we really trust in Jesus? Give him the weary eye, like, I'm not so sure. Am I allowed to say that as a preacher? <laughs> can we really trust Jesus? But I guess I just did. Um, do we, we might think, is he really there? You promised me that he's going to be there, but is he really? doesn't feel like it. You say that Jesus understands, like he's been there before, but I don't know if he's been there in my situation. It's like, it's like, the, um, it's like as if Jesus has become the school administrator with no teaching experience, right? And the teacher cries foul, saying, uh, you don't know what it's like in there, right? They're trying to make decisions on the classroom, and like, they haven't been there, and they haven't been a teacher. You want their administrator to have been a classroom teacher before, right? Those of you who are teachers, you want that. Um, and so we're saying that about Jesus, like, you, you don't know what my situation is like. I, you need to be here. So my task this morning is to convince you that Jesus, when he says, trust me, that he can be trusted, that he is sufficient for you in your suffering. I want you to think of your worst trial, your deepest loss, your most difficult season of your life. And how do you answer these questions that, that, we've, been, that we've been asking, that we've been telling you in this series, that is he really my advocate? Is he really a redeemer? Will he really fight for me? How can I be so sure? Am I able to be confident in his sufficiency? Well, I want you to be. And I want you to be able to point others to him in that sufficiency. We want to be able to solve other people's problems for them. We want to be able to comfort them. But are we able to point to the superior comforter, the God of all comfort, and say, well, I... I, I'm going to be seriously lacking in here, but Jesus, he's sufficient to, to comfort you in your weaknesses. Are we, are we able to point to him towards other sufferers? So, you look at, at Job 29 to 31. We're going to see that. And, and so the structure of Job 39 to, 29 to 31 is, is one of a, he's kind of giving his final appeal. If you have in your Bibles, some of yours, the heading might be Job's summary defense. Right? So these are kind of his, his closing arguments. This is his last speech that Job makes in the book. And so you know closing arguments. I, I've, I've watched a few Matlock shows, so I have some level of expertise in what the, the courtroom looks like. But you have your opening statements, right? So the, the both sides say this is what the case is, and then they spend the next several minutes of the episode or next several days of the actual courtroom doing evidence and witnesses and just trying to make their case. And then at the end, they have each, the prosecution, and the defense has their opportunity to kind of give their closing arguments, the closing case, to say, this is why my client is either guilty or not guilty. Uh, we have famous ones throughout history. Uh, I think of um, the John Grisham novel, A Time to Kill, where uh, that closing argument really turned the case for the jury. Um, if you guys are a child of the 90s like I am, um, O.J. Simpson trial, that was, that was wild. I remember being in fifth grade and like the teacher like wheeling in the TV to like watch the closing arguments of that trial. That's O.J. Simpson. But anyway, uh, so what, what did Johnny, Johnny Cochran say on those closing arguments? If the glove don't fit, 
you must acquit, right? That was his closing argument that apparently sealed the deal for O.J. Simpson. Uh, so here, Job is kind of acting as his own attorney, saying, these are my closing arguments, to try to convince God, trying to convince his friends, trying to convince everybody, look, this is unjust, what has happened to me. This is not right. He's grieving, and he's saying, this is not right. So in chapter 29, what he does is he reminisces about the good old days. This is, what I, this is what I used to have, me before the suffering. Then chapter 30, he turns on a dime, and he says, but this is my present condition. This is how horrible it is right now. This is how unjust this is. This is what I'm experiencing. And then he turns in chapter 31 to kind of make his final appeal to say, look, if I've done that, then fine, let it happen to me. If I have done, he lists nine different things. And so uh, what, what I want to do in this section is not necessarily go through the horrible life that Job had, the horrible sufferings that he had, and try to make a defense for him. What I want to do is I want to do what Jesus did and see this, see Jesus as the fulfillment of him. So Luke chapter 24, uh, right after the resurrection, Jesus is walking, and he sees these two guys in the road, and um, they, these two guys are kind of like weeping and mourning and kind of like really sad, and Jesus comes up to them. They don't recognize Jesus. I, I don't know why. Like Maybe he had like the emperor's hood on him, and it's like his face is all shattered, but I, don't, I have no idea why they couldn't recognize him, but it doesn't say. But they can't recognize him, and Jesus says, why are you so sad? Jesus, and they said, well, we thought that Jesus was the Messiah. We thought he was going to fulfill all things, but um, apparently he didn't. Apparently it was just a farce uh, or something. And so then what, is, what Jesus does is he actually opens up the Old Testament, what we have there, the, the, the 39 books of the Old Testament. He opens them up, and it says that in, in that he interpreted all things concerning himself. So here, and then it says that their hearts were burning within them. Like, wow, I finally understand the Old Testament. That's, that's what, I, I imagine Jesus opening up to Job and saying, that's me. This is my story. I'm the, I'm the ultimate fulfillment of Job 29 to 31. This is me. So that's what I want to do this morning, is just see how this is Jesus. And so you, you'll see there in your, your, your outline of three points, how can we... Uh, how can I trust Jesus in the midst of my suffering? We're going to see three aspects of who Jesus is in here. And the first one is chapter 29, Jesus, the honorable, perfect one. Jesus, the honorable, perfect one. This is chapter 29. Again, Job is reminiscing on the good old days, how it was before the bottom fell out. And the same is true for Jesus. He had it all before he came to earth. So look at, look at I'm going to read verse 1 to 5. Uh, verse of chapter 29. And Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that it, I as it oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my bed, and by his light I walked through darkness. As I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me. So Job is saying that he had this watchful eye of God, that he was friends with God. He could say that he was his friend. So Job, okay, you had some good quiet times. But Jesus says, before Abraham existed, I am. Jesus says, I'm not only friends with God, I am God. Jesus doesn't just appear on the scene in Bethlehem. He had eternal fellowship 
with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Before incarnation, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, was an eternal fellowship with one another. So Jesus is able to say, I was not only friends with God, but I eternally existed within the triune Godhead. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, I was in the beginning with God. And because of that, because of he is God, he is adored and worshipped. So get back to verse 5 again. When my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter, and the rock poured out for me streams of oil, when I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard it, the ear heard it called me blessed, and when the eye saw, it approved. So Jesus is, so Job, he's walking around in the town square, and everybody is just quiet. They're, they're just, they're, uh, they're, there's a respected man that's coming in their midst. So imagine a respected man coming in here in, in front of us. So I'm thinking somebody like, uh, like a Martin Luther King or a, a Mahatma Gandhi, someone who's like really respected. I'm not talking about Taylor Swift. She's not respected. But someone who's really, really respected, not just famous, but someone who's respected. Our jobs would be like, I, I don't think I can say anything. I don't want to say anything in front of their presence. I just want to hear. I want to hear from them. They're so honorable, they're so respected, I just, I'm closing my mouth. I'm almost dumbstruck in front of them. And Job had that in the city, in the city gates. Jesus has that honor and glory in the universe, in the heavens. Imagine just what the throne room scene in the heavens would be like for Jesus. It's not just princes and noblemen who worship him, but angelic beings fall down in worship and adoration of Jesus. There was a, a prophet by the name of Isaiah, and uh, there's a whole, whole book about him, uh, a whole book that he wrote. And in Isaiah, in chapter 6, uh, he's taken up into, as, into a vision, into the throne room of God. He kind of gets a glimpse of Jesus on his throne. And, and when he gets in there, he is just he's dumbstruck with the awe and the majesty that's there. And not just he can't say a word, but he's like, get me the heck out of here because I don't belong here. I don't belong. I'm, I'm a, a man of, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a sinful man. I, I am impure. And this all around me is pure. It is holy. It's unadulterated. And I'm just going to spoil this. So get me out of here. That's the throne room of Jesus. That's the honor and the glory that he gets. Even the best of men, the most honored here on earth, are silenced before Jesus on his throne. And then we see why he is worshiped and honored by so many. Verses 12 to 17. It says, goodness and his mercy. Look at verse 12. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him, the blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. That's why Jesus is worshipped, because of his mercy and his kindness and his goodness. On who? To those in society 
that people don't deem worthy of their time and their energy. Just think about that. That this is why Jesus is adored and worshipped. Yes, he created everything out of nothing. And yeah, he's worshipped because of that. Yes, he's adored and worshipped because he can do anything. Because of his majesty, his supreme in his majesty. Which he is. And he is adored for that. But here, it's, he's worshipped because of how he treats the lowly. And not out of some pity, but out of a genuine love for them. It's not a project. It's never been a project for Jesus. It's always out of love. Look, at, look how he's the fulfillment of this description, how Job describes himself. It says in verse 12 that he was a father. Well, Jesus is a father to the fatherless. He adopts them into his family, makes him co-heirs with them in his kingdom. In verse 14, Jesus doesn't just put on righteousness. He is righteous. Verse 15, Jesus doesn't just lead blind people, but he gives blind people their sight. And I love the picture of verse 17, that Jesus knocks the teeth out of evil people. He knocks their teeth out because he's so angry and upset that they would do that. They would oppress the lowly. Then it says, then Job continues on in verse 18, he says, Then I thought, I shall die in my nest. I shall multiply my days as the sand. My roots spread out to the waters with the dew all night in my branches. My glory fresh with me and my bow ever new in my hand. So Job, he, he thinks that he's lived such an honorable life that he deserved that to rest in peace. I just, I get to rest in peace. I get to die of an old age and die in my sleep. I don't have to have any pain. That's going to be me. But for Jesus, in eternity past, death is a foreign concept to him. As divinity, he can't experience death. That was never something he was like, oh, that'll happen to me at some point. For Jesus, he is eternity. A, a billion years is a day to him, and a day is like a billion years. He never needed to number his days because he is the ancient of days. Always existing, never ceasing, never changing. And then in verse 21, Job draws upon the wisdom that he had. 21 says, Men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. After I spoke, they did not speak again, and my word dropped upon them. They waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouths as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they had no confidence, and the light of my face they did not cast down. I chose their way and sat as chief, and I lived like a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. So Job drew upon a learned wisdom, but Jesus, he is wisdom from on high. He knows all things past, all things present all things future. He knows every detail of his creation because he made it. He knows all possible outcomes. He knows every situation. He doesn't, he doesn't need Dr. Strange's wheel and his little witchcraftery to like get, get him to know the future and the plans. Verse 25 says that, he, that Job was, he sat as chief. Jesus, he's the chief of chiefs. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. So if Job had it all, then Jesus had it all to the nth degree. Jesus is like, yeah, Job, I get it. And more. 
to fully comprehend our salvation, we, we must know where Jesus came from. This is the furthest that anyone has ever traveled, from the highest of high, an infinite place, to the lowest of low, to the finite. Jesus possesses all the attributes of deity. He is so infinitely higher than anything we can imagine or anything that we perceive. And then, he, and then verse, or chapter 30 comes along. Chapter 30, Job turns the corner and he says, but now, and now this happens. And you'll, you'll see that refrain throughout chapter 30. And now, and now, but now this is my present condition. What he once had is now lost. And the same is with Jesus. His life was filled with a but now. Jesus lowered himself to the depths of humanity, experiencing worse than what Job ever had. The first thing that we see in, in the first 15 verses of chapter 30 is this ironic mockery of worthless fellows. Look at me at, at verse 1 of chapter 30. But now they laugh at me. Men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. What could I gain from the strength of their hands, whose, men whose vigor is gone? Through want and hard hunger, they gnaw the dry ground by night and waste and desolation. They pick stalwart and leaves of bushes and the roots of the broom tree for their food. They are driven out from human company. They shout after them as after a thief. In the gullies of the torrents they must dwell, in holes of the earth and of the rocks. Among the bushes they bray, under the nettles they huddle together. A, na a senseless, a nameless brood, they have been whipped out of the land. And now I have become their song. I am a byword to them. They abhor me. They keep aloof from me. They do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me. Because God has loosed my cord and humbled me, they have cast off restraint in my presence. On my right hand the rabble rise. They push away my feet. They cast up against me their ways of destruction. They break up my path. They promote my calamity. They need no one to help. As through a wide breach they come, amid the crash they roll on. Terrors are turned upon me. My honor is pursued as by the wind, and my prosperity has passed away like a cloud. Job is thinking, isn't this ironic? It's like a traffic jam when you're already late. A no-smoking sign on your cigarette break. Isn't it ironic? The same guys that I helped... The same guys that, I, that in chapter 29, the lowly are now spitting at me and thinking that I'm worthless. Isn't it ironic? These worthless dogs, his words, not mine, abhor him, spit at him, humble him, promote his calamity, torch his honor. All this irony happened to Job because of suffering that happened to him. But see, Jesus, he knew what he was signing up for. And he humbled himself to this point. He voluntarily took this on. Jesus came into the world knowing that the world would mistreat him. The Bible says that Jesus emptied himself, humbling himself by taking on human form. The divine being taking on dependence and need. He was born into poverty, not into royalty, that he is, but born into a family, a carpenter's family in a town of Nazareth. 
Even in adulthood, though, there was no place that he said, there's no place for me to lay my head. I have no bed to sleep on. He was constantly rejected by others. Countless miracles, supernatural events, like, like God audibly speaking and saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And they still called him a deceiver, refusing to believe in him to the point that they choose to let a murderer go free instead of Jesus. Even his own family said, this guy's out of his mind. His brothers didn't believe in him. In his darkest of days, his best friends leave him, betray him, deny him, leave him all alone. Job, look, Jesus is saying, you got your three friends, as worthless as they might be. But Jesus says, I had no one in my suffering. Look at verse 16 to the end of the chapter. It says, And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones, and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. With great force my garment is disfigured. It binds me about like the collar of my tunic. God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind, you make me ride on it. And you toss me about in the roar of the storm. For I know that you will bring me to death into the house of appointed for all living. Yet... Does not one in the heap of ruin stretch out his hand and in disaster cry for help? Did I not weep for him whose day was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? But when I hoped for good, evil came. When I waited for light, darkness came. My inward parts are in turmoil and never still. Days of affliction come to meet me. I go about darkened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I'm a brother of jackals, a companion of ostriches. My skin turns black and falls from me, and my bones burn with heat. My lyre is turned to mourning, and my pipe to the voice of those who weep. Job is crying out, saying, look what's happened to me. Everybody, I'm all alone, and the suffering that I have. He feels that even God has abandoned him. And Jesus knows this loss. He knows separation. He grieved it. For hours in the night, Jesus would pray to the Father. And I think part of that prayer was just longing for that eternal fellowship that he had. Longing. There was a separation that they were experiencing. And he wanted that back. Jesus not only felt it alone, but he experienced being alone, apart from God, being alone from God he didn't just feel it. He experienced that on the cross. And the cross is the pinnacle for his suffering. From the most unjust trial in the history of, the, of humanity to the painful, shameful mockery of his death. And that really wasn't the worst part. The worst part, he was cursed by God on that tree. The Father turning his back on him. Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? Why have you left me alone? And Jesus knows why. 
because the weight of my sin, the weight of your sin, the weight of the sin of the world was on him, and God had to look away. He had to be abandoned that moment. He had to in order to take on the sin of the world. See, Job is blaming God for abandoning him, but Jesus volunteered for this. Jesus says, if this cup of abandonment might pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And that doesn't diminish it. I think it heightens it. It heightens his love for us. Jesus knows this same suffering of abandonment. So Jesus experienced this unjust world in the deepest of way. He experienced humility. He experienced abandonment by God and friends and the world. And here's the million-dollar question. Why? Why did he do that? Why would Jesus willingly, voluntarily go to this point of suffering? Because of his great love for you. It was to redeem you and take you as his own. There was no other way to do it. He did it selflessly, thinking of you to bring honor and glory to his Father by having his bride pure before him. So then look at chapter 31. We have Jesus, the sacrifice given for us. Jesus, the sacrifice given for us. Job finally gives up here. Nine times he says, if I've done it, then let, let me be punished for it. Jesus says it a little bit differently. Jesus says, you have done it, but punish me for it. That's the beautiful, beautiful twist to the gospel. It turned from, if you have done this, to a, yeah, you have, but. The if turned to a but. Kids, don't snicker, please. The if turned to a but. Listen to this list of wrongs, of sins against God and others. Job says that he is blameless in all these. But how do you stack up? Look at, look at verse 1 of chapter 31. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does he not see my ways and number all my steps? So yeah, Job is agreeing with his friends. Finally, he agrees with his friends. Yeah, you know what? That's for the unrighteous. So God punishes the unrighteous, for sure. And then he starts to show how blameless he is. And I want to see, I want, let's go through this, and let's see how you stack up. Are you able to say, if I've done this, then punish me for it? Verses 5 to 8, we see idolatry. If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. If my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat, and let what grows before me be rooted out. So, in other words, if I have pursued other things than you, God, then let those be taken away from me. Verse 9. If my heart has been enticed toward a woman, and if I have lain in wait in my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another, and let others bow down on her. For that would be a heinous crime. That would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges. 
for that would be a fire that consumes as far as Abaddon, and it would burn to the root of all my increase. So adultery now. If I have lusted after another woman, then let someone else sleep with my wife. That's what he says. Verse 13. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they, are brought a, when they brought a complaint against me, what shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? So now he gets to oppression. If I have mistreated my employees by not caring for them, then may God do the same to me when I call on him. Verse 16. If I have withheld anything that the poor desired, or I have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or I have eaten my morsel alone and the fatherless has not eaten of it, for from my youth the fatherless grew up with me as with a father, and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or the needy without covering, if his body has not blessed me, and if he was not warmed by the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder, and let my arm be broken from its socket. For I was in terror of calamity from God, and I could not have faced his majesty. So here we have what I call stinginess. If I have taken anything more than necessary while others have suffered lack, then let that same arm that reached for more be broken. Verse 24 to 28, we have greed. If I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone or the moon moving in splendor and my heart has been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. So, in other words, he's saying, if my confidence had been my wealth, then I'm exposed by not having the faith that I claim to have in God because reality shows where my trust really lies. So take that away from me. In uh, verse 29 to 30, we have vengeance. If I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me or exalted when evil overtook him, I have not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. And then in verse 31 to 32, we have inhospitability. Inhospitality, sorry. If the men of my tent have not said, Who is there that has not been filled with his meat? The sojourner has not lodged in the street. I have opened my doors to the traveler. Verses 33 to 37, we have hypocrisy. If I have concealed my transgressions as others do by hiding my iniquity in my heart, because I stood in the great fear of the multitude and the contempt of families terrified me so that I kept silence and did not go out of doors, oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him the account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. And then to finish out the chapter 38 to 40, we have theft. 
If my hand has cried out against me, and its furrows have wept together, if I have eaten its yield without payment, and made its owners breathe their last, let thorns grow instead of wheat, and foul weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. So, how did you do? Idolatry, adultery, oppression, stinginess, greed, vengeance, inhospitality, hypocrisy, theft. How did you do? Did you pass the test? If I have done any of those? My suspicion is that it's not good. I know that I can't say like Job. I'm blameless. I know I can't say that. I don't have the guts to call all this condemnation down on me like Job did. I cry for mercy in these. And we all want mercy, right? Like, take the adultery. If you've lusted against another, justice says that your spouse should be able to do the same. You know, kids are expert at fairness here. I get that all the time in my house. But that's not fair. He gets to do that. You got to do that for him last time. How come he gets to, why can't I? If you have that solution to parenting, please let me know. But they love, we, we all want justice. We all want fairness. Take the employer issue. If you ignore the issues of the people under you and you don't advocate for them, then that means you're okay with your boss to ignore you when you want advocacy. We all want fairness when it's convenient for us. And God, he is the very definition of justice. And we want him to be. If he wasn't, then those who have wronged would go free. So he must punish your sin and my sin, our rebellion against him and hurt done to others. He must have justice for that. And we want that. But my goal is not for you to live in shame over your sin, to dwell here, to make you feel bad about it, to, to make yourself clean, clean yourself up so that doesn't happen to you. No, because this is where Jesus says, yeah, you did it, but punish me for it. I'll take your sin on me. Yes, you are idolatrous, you are adulterous, you are greedy, you are a hypocrite, you're a hypocrite that stinks to high heaven, but I will take your punishment. I will take the wrath of God on me so that you can take my righteousness and go free. Crestview, this is our hope in suffering that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who knew no sin, was completely pure and undefiled, was made to be sin, to take on your rebellion, your mistakes, your shame, your filth, took on abandonment and scorn and the wrath of God so that we can become the righteousness of God, so that we might have his righteousness by faith in him. And you know what the conclusion is? The conclusion is not death, but resurrection. Jesus doesn't remain in the grave. He doesn't remain defeated. He doesn't remain abandoned by God. He isn't left alone, but he conquered it. He rose that Sunday morning showing his victory over suffering and over death. And those who believe in him, who trust in his name alone, who give their lives to him, Jesus promises that you will be raised by the same power that he was raised. By faith, your unity with him, your sufferings, is not the end of the road. 
your suffering is not the end of your story. Just like we suffer with him and we die with him, we will also be raised with him in glory. In your suffering, look to that resurrection power. So I, I hope this morning I've, I've moved you into a deeper trust, into a, a deeper faith in Jesus. Just, just listen to God tell you this morning that your final appeal, your closing argument, has to be Jesus. Don't let your argument be like Job here. It will fail. But through Jesus, the perfect Holy One, humiliated on the cross for you and your salvation, was raised for your justification. That, Crestview, is your final appeal. In your suffering, in your trial, in the mess that you're in, that you, have, you might be made right because of your sin, that you made right because of your appeal to Jesus. So tell God in prayer that yes, I screwed up. I have violated every command. I have rebelled against you. I deserve the worst hell on earth and in the afterlife. And it's not an if, because I did it. And, if, and then appeal. In your prayer, appeal and say, but Jesus paid that for me. Jesus, wash me clean by your blood on the cross. Give me your honor. And he promises to do it. Whether it be in this life or the next, you will be honored with him. This is our hope and suffering, to trust and to lean on into Jesus. He is sufficient to take away our sin, to make us clean. He is sufficient to carry our burdens and our griefs. Jesus can take it because he's been there. And it's not just he's been there, but he did something about it. He took it to the cross so that we can be free. So will you trust him today? Will you give him your life? Will you trust him enough to, to point him to others? To say, I can't be sufficient for you in your suffering, but there's a guy, I know a guy who is, and that's Jesus. When you sit with mourners, when you sit with those who are suffering, not to be like Job's friends, but to say, there is a, a Jesus, there is one Jesus who has suffered, bled, and died, and rose again for you. We can be confident to know this Jesus and to make him known to others in suffering and in deep hurts. So in these final moments, I want to spend some time just in deep contemplation. I want you to spend a few moments in meditation on who this Jesus is, the great one that he is and the great things that he has done for you, the counselor that he is. Even though in the deepest of trials we are tempted by the enemy to think that our sufferings overwhelm us, our trial, the storm overwhelms us. But Jesus is there, walking with you. He is your rock and your salvation. So spend a few minutes now just meditating, going to him this morning.